Welcome to The Time of Our Life, a special series from Valley Public Radio. I'm David Alves. In this series, award-winning journalist and author Mark Arax offers a special perspective on our times viewed through the lens of writer William Soroyan. This week, we're joined by Fresno poet Bryn Saito, who will read Soroyan's The Journey to Hanford and a Soroyan essay on writing. Bryn Saito is a poet and professor in the English department at Fresno State and the author of two books of poetry. Together with Nikiko Masamoto, she's the co-founder of the Yonsei Memory Project, which creates intergenerational spaces for memory keeping within the Japanese-American community and in alliance with other communities and movements for justice and healing. Bryn is a fourth-generation Japanese-American and Korean-American, born and raised in Fresno. Bryn Saito, welcome. Great to have you with us. Thank you. And Mark Arex, great to have you with us as always. Thanks, David. I'm, I'm really excited to have Bryn here. I encountered her poetry about a year ago in a backyard near Fresno City College. A bunch of writers and poets had gathered for a nice cause, and uh, I was just blown away by her poem, and I was upset at myself for really not having known her stuff. Bryn, that, I remember the poem, but I remember what it was titled. Tell us a little bit about that poem you read that night. Sure. Yeah, that was a letter, um, kind of a prose poem letter I wrote to my dad. My dad and I had took a trip last summer to the Gila River concentration camp in Arizona, where, you know, my grandparents were incarcerated during World War II. And that was the first time dad and I had visited that site. So a lot of the writing I did after that were sort of these letters to elders and ancestors and friends and colleagues, um, just like processing that trip and thinking about it. And my dad actually wrote me back, <laughs> which wow. is great. He wrote me a short letter back and all of that's um, posted on online. Yeah, you're lucky. You're lucky to have that experience. That's uh, quite something. Um, that kind of teased this question up for me, which is kind of about trauma. Yeah, I think the word trauma, uh, maybe I'm showing my age a little bit here, but I think the word trauma has been cheapened over the years. It's It's kind of come to mean every bump, scrape, indignity that we've <laughs> suffered, you know, from the schoolyard to the workplace. I want to talk to you about the kind of trauma that becomes generational, that's almost cellular. It's it's certainly the kind of trauma that Soroyan wrote about as a kid being born in Fresno in 1908, and then seeing these survivors of the Armenian genocide trickle in to his community in 1916, 17, 18, and, and he that eventually becomes so much of his storytelling. You've done the same, that kind of burden of storytelling through this project called The Memory Keepers. Tell us about that project. Yeah, you know, a lot of my writing recently and then the work with Nikiko Masumoto, you know, peach farmer and writer and artist, yeah, really has been sort of what can our generation sort of how does our generation carry that legacy of trauma, that history of the incarceration? And I'm sure like writers like Sororian and and descendants further along, you know, thinking about the Armenian genocide and the weight of that always just, I think those questions for us as, as descendants of survivors, you know, are very alive. How do we carry forth the stories of resilience and strength? But how do we also sort of transmute some of the pain using story and using art to really kind of create these moments of catharsis and potentially healing, you know, for our community. I think um, 
it's been really healing for some of the elders in my community to to see their stories reflected back to them, like through the work Nikiko's done or somebody like Mas Masamoto or myself, um, that work of just surfacing and reflecting those stories back to those who lived through it and maybe had a really hard time talking about it has been sort of cathartic, I think, for our whole community. So yeah, I think a lot of my my poetry making and a lot of my activism and my work in the community just really comes from that desire to to heal and to to remember, but also to continue and live and write and tell new stories of joy and you know resilience and survival, and also to connect, I think, our story, our community's story with the struggles of other communities um, like the Armenian community, like the Latinx community, like so many other communities who have been survivors of these these histories. So there's sort of this solidarity piece and this healing piece that I think influences a lot of my work right now. So this was the time of the internment camps. The internment camps, kind of a euphemism, actually. They were they yeah, were concentration yeah. camps. We had over 127,000, I think, Japanese rounded up and sent to these camps. Uh, February 1942 was, I, I believe, mm-hmm. the order. And they were there mm-hmm. for, um, you know, till January of 1945. I remember my grandfather telling me stories where during that time, farmers would put these white caps, these little caps mm-hmm. on their early season of vegetables to protect them from the frost. And people started believing that the Japanese farmers were putting these white caps on in a direction that pointed toward naval bases mm-hmm. so that the Japanese bombers could see those targets better. I mean, this is how wow. absurd it got. So it was a time of fear, right? Yeah, a lot of fear, a lot of hysteria, a lot of like things we've seen in other moments of our history where different yeah. communities get just targeted or just racism just starts to flare up in the country. Suddenly you look a little bit like the quote unquote enemy and the whole community gets targeted. And um, yeah, over 120,000 people evacuated from the West Coast and then sort of moved into these these concentration camps further east. What did it look like 60, 70 years later when you were there with your pops? Yeah, you know, you could still see the foundations of the barracks. You could still see the concrete they poured. A lot of creosote, which I think was mentioned in one of William Sorian's pieces. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. That's the creosote and the shrubs and the, the a lot of the creosote has grown into the overgrown the foundations and it's on the native sovereign land of the Gila River Indian community. So we had these wonderful two Native American guides guide us through the land. We spent like hours on the land with them. And that was sort of the um, one of the most unexpected and powerful things for my dad and I was just getting to know the Gila River Indian community and yeah. their you know hundreds of years of history on that land and their relationship to it and how they thought about what they called a prison built on top of a prison, <laughs> you know, instead of had these camp built on this, the, the reservation land. So our conversations with them was just so rich and, and they were so generous, you know, and sharing their lives and walking us through the land and showing us where this camp was and that barrack and this stone and the administration office and the church. And they knew that land. And so that was a real, real gift. 
Geez, that land. I mean, if it could speak to what it could talk about. Um, yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Um, layers, layers of history. They are yeah. one upon the other. Let's talk about the silence a little bit. I remember touring Coda Farms in Dos Palos. This was a farm. They, they had done some early variety of sweet rice. And then their farm during that period of fear was taken from them. And they were sent to some camp. And this white family took it over and um, basically didn't do a very good job, kind of picked over the, the flesh of that farm and left behind this carcass. And it was all liquidated. And when they got out of the camps and came back to Dos Palos, that farm that was theirs wasn't theirs anymore. Mm -hmm. But they bought land right next to it and rebuilt their rice farm. And I remember the daughter telling me about this word in, in Japanese where all this was endured with a kind of silence by the mm -hmm. the Nisei and even the Sansei generation to a degree. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the word meant, don't worry about it, it can't be undone. Or worry about mm -hmm. it, but don't worry about it to such an extent because it cannot be undone. Tell me about that word and how, um, yeah. you know. Yeah, there was shigatakanai, which was a phrase sort of meant it can't be held, must be endured. And Shikatakanai and then gaman as well, G-A-M-A-N as a Japanese phrase or saying that kind of also related like enduring with dignity. Yeah. Gaman, gaman, we're going to endure with dignity. And that phrase is something still we, you know, talk about and that, that lives on and and that some of the Nisei elders really, you know, just adhered adhered to. And yeah, the silence piece is so fascinating to me. Like I remember being younger and being almost mad at my grandparents because they didn't tell me anything about camp and why didn't they tell me and why were they so silent and they you know they died like 20 years ago now my my father's parents and and then over the years I understood the silence differently like it was also a sort of um a rebellion of its own or a way of surviving yeah. it was also in some ways a radical gesture you know so it's like it's 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 become I'm just trying to like understand the shape of it and respect it but then also have those feelings of like gosh and then what would I do you know in this moment and what are the ways in which I'm I'm also silent about things maybe that you know truths I'm afraid to tell or ways I'm afraid to maybe stand by somebody or not be a bystander and be an ally to somebody and yeah the silence over the years it's I've had this different relationship to it I think as I've grown and thought more about it. It's um, weird. It's it's almost, I mean, the idea is that you inflicted this pain on me, but I'm not going to give you the dignity of allowing that pain inside me, or at least yeah. I, I, I won't, I'm not going to give you that. Is that something that's part of it, you think? Yeah, probably just a very strong, I think, sense of, a sense of dignity and a lot of Japanese culture, Asian culture, like shame as well like not wanting to be shamed wanting to protect the community wanting to protect the family to carry on with that dignity I like that and, and that right you kind of thought a little bit about the stones like when I was visiting Manzanar or visiting Gila River I, I collect these stones and I also thought of Sororian collecting the rocks and the stones and starting yeah. the stones and and the stone for me became the symbol of I think a symbol of that silence, like it was this strong, protective silence, um, but it also kept a lot of things out and kept a lot of things in. And 
but endured and the stone and the rocks and I think about my dad collecting rocks and making a garden and and my dad also is having that sanse stone like kind of strength and resilience and yeah all these ways just these different metaphors and landscapes kind of get wrapped up in the whole thing too so you're going to read a journey to hanford okay Mm -hmm. um What's going on in that story? Because Soroyan stories, we've learned now, this is episode five, Soroyan stories are very complex. I mean, you can read them as a child and take away some mm-hmm. great stuff, come as, back as an adult, and you see, wow, there's a whole another layer here that's going on. So tell us about mm-hmm. a, a Journey to Hanford. Yeah, that was a short story in his collection. My name is Aram, and I was really drawn to it, in part because the title initially um, – Every time I see that title, I think of my first trip out of Fresno. I grew up in Fresno, and um, the first place I ever went to outside of Fresno was Hanford. (laughs) (laughs) Did you get the ice cream there? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Took the train. It was the first big journey away. So I love how the story is sort of through that lens. You know, a lot of these stories in this book are through that lens of childhood and youth and just seeing kind of that world he was living in and what that journey sort of meant, that trip meant. And, but ultimately, I think now when I read the story, I found myself really interested in the sort of gender dynamics and the, the power of women that's sort of threaded through in these subtle ways and just the way, you know, he's using humor to also say something about the nature maybe of patriarchy and masculinity and motherhood um, and these sort of subtle themes woven throughout, but just in these very deceptively simple ways. So I think it's just a really delightful piece. I very much enjoyed returning to it again. Well, that tees it up. I'd love to hear it. Let's listen now as Bryn Saito reads William Soroyan's The Journey to Hanford. The Journey to Hanford. The time came one year from my sad Uncle Georgie to fix his bicycle and ride 27 miles to Hanford, where it seems there was a job. I went with him, although at first there was talk of sending my cousin Vosk instead. The family didn't want to complain about having among its members a fool like Georgie, but at the same time it wanted a chance, in the summertime, to forget him for a while. If he went away and got himself a job in Hanford, in the watermelons, all would be well. Georgie would earn a little money and at the same time be out of the way. That was the important thing, to get him out of the way. To hell with him and his zither both, my grandfather said. When you read in a book that a man who sits all day under a tree and plays a zither and sings is a great man, believe me, that writer is a liar. Money. That's the thing. Let him go and sweat under the sun for a while. Him and his zither both. You say that now, my grandmother said, but wait a week. Wait till you need music again. That is nonsense, my grandfather said. Let him go. It is 27 miles to Hanford. That is a good, intelligent distance. You speak that way now, my grandmother said, but in three days you'll be a melancholy man. I shall see you walking about like a tiger. I am the one who shall see that. Seeing that, I am the one who shall laugh. You are a woman, my grandfather said. When you read in a book with hundreds of pages of small prints that a woman is truly a creature of wonder, 
That writer has turned his face away from his wife and is dreaming. Let him go. It is simply that you are not young any longer, my grandmother said. That is the thing making you roar. Close your mouth, my grandfather said. Close it, or here comes the back of my hand. My grandfather looked about the room at his children and grandchildren. I say he goes to Hanford on his bicycle. What do you say? Nobody spoke. Then that's settled, my grandfather said. Now who shall we send with him? Which of the uncouth of our children shall we punish by sending him with Georgie to Hanford? When you read in a book that a journey to another city is a pleasant experience for a young man, that writer is probably a man of 80 or 90 who, as a child, once went in a wagon two miles from home. Who shall we punish? Vosk? Shall Vosk be the one? Step up here, boy. My cousin Vosk got up from the floor and stood in front of the old man, who looked down at him furiously, twisted his enormous mustaches, cleared his throat, and put his hand over the boy's face. His hand practically covered the whole head. Vosk didn't move. Shall you go with your uncle Georgie to Hanford? My grandfather said. If it pleases my grandfather, Vosk said. The old man began to make faces, thinking it over. Let me think a moment, he said. Georgie's spirit is the foolish one of our tribe. Yours is also. Is it wise to put two fools together? He turned to the others. Let me hear your thoughts on this theme. Is it wise to put a grown fool and a growing one together of the same tribe? Will it profit anyone? Speak up so I may consider. I think it would be the natural thing to do, my uncle Zorab said. A fool and a fool. A man to work, the boy to keep the house and cook. Perhaps, my grandfather said, let's consider. A fool and a fool, one to work, the other to keep house and cook. Can you cook, boy? Of course he can cook, my grandmother said. Rice, at least. Is that true, boy, about the rice? Two cups of water, one cup of rice, one teaspoonful of salt. Do you know about the trick of making it come out like food instead of swill? Of course he can cook rice, my grandmother said. The back of my hand is on its way to your mouth, my grandfather said. Let the boy speak for himself. He has a tongue. Can you do it, boy? When you read in a book that a boy answers an old man wisely, that writer has read the Old Testament and is bent on exaggeration. Can you make it come out like food, not swill? I have cooked rice, Vosk said. It came out like food. Was there enough salt to it? If you lie, remember my hand. Vosk hesitated a moment. I understand, my grandfather said. You are embarrassed about the rice. What was wrong with it? Truth is all that pleases me. Speak up fearlessly. If it is the truth fearlessly, no man can demand more. What embarrasses you about the rice? It was too salty, Vosk said. We had to drink water all day and all night. No elaboration, my grandfather said. Only what is true. The rice was too salty. Naturally, you had to drink water all day and all night. We've all eaten that kind of rice. Don't think because you drank water all day and all night that you are the first Armenian who ever did that. Just tell me that it was too salty. I'm not here to learn. I know. Just say it was too salty and let me try to determine if you are the one to go. 
My grandfather turned to the others. He began to make faces again. I think this boy is to go, he said. But speak up, if you have something to say. Salty is better than swill. Was it light in texture, boy? It was light in texture, Vosk said. I believe this is the one to send, my grandfather said. The water is good for the gut. Shall it be this boy? Vos Garaglanian? Or who? On second thought, my uncle Zorab said, two fools, out and out, perhaps not, although the rice is not swill. I nominate Aram. Perhaps he should go. He deserves to be punished. Everybody looked at me. Aram, my grandfather said. Our Aram? Who else would he mean? My grandmother said. You know very well who he means. My grandfather turned slowly for half a minute, looked at my grandmother. When you read in a book about some man who falls in love with a girl and marries her, that writer is a very young man who has no idea she is going to talk out of turn right up to the time she is ready to go into the ground at the age of 97. Aram Garaglanian, he said. Yes, my uncle Zorab said. What has he done to deserve this awful punishment? He knows. Aram Garaglanian, my grandfather said. I got up and stood in front of my grandfather. He put his big hand over my face and rubbed it. What have you done? He said. Which one? I said. My grandfather turned to my uncle Zorab. Tell the boy which mischief to acknowledge. There appear to be several. He knows which one, my uncle Zorab said. Do you mean showing the neighbors how you pick your teeth? Using one hand to hide the work of the other? My uncle Zorab refused to speak. Or do you mean walking and talking the way you walk and talk? This is the boy to send with Georgie, my uncle Zorab said. Can you cook rice? My grandfather said. He didn't care to go into detail about my making fun of my uncle Zorab. If I could cook rice, I should go with Georgie to Hanford. That was what it came to. Of course I wanted to go, no matter what the writer who wrote that it was a fine experience for a boy to travel. Fool or liar or anything else, I wanted to go. I can cook rice, I said. Salty or swill or what? Sometimes salty, sometimes swill, sometimes perfect. Let's consider, my grandfather said. He leaned against the wall considering three large glasses of water, he said to my grandmother. My grandmother went to the kitchen and after a moment returned with three large glasses of water on a tray. My grandfather drank one glass after another, then turned to the others, making many thoughtful faces. Sometimes salty, he said, sometimes swill, sometimes perfect. Is this the boy to send to Hanford? Yes, my uncle Zorab said, the only one. So be it, my grandfather said. That will be all. I wish to be alone. I moved to go. My grandfather took me by the neck. Stay a moment, he said. When we were alone, he said, walk and talk the way your uncle Zorab walks and talks. I did so, and my grandfather roared with laughter. Go to Hanford, he said. Go with the fool, Georgie, and make it salty, or make it swill, or make it perfect. 
In this manner, I was assigned to be my uncle Georgie's companion on his journey to Hanford. We set out the following morning before daybreak. I sat on the crossbar of the bicycle and my uncle Georgie on the seat. But when I got tired, I got off and walked. And after a while, my uncle Georgie got off and walked and I rode. We didn't reach Hanford until late that afternoon. We were supposed to stay in Hanford till the job ended after the watermelon season. That was the idea. We went around town looking for a house to stay in, a house with a stove in it, gas connections and water. We didn't care about electricity, but we wanted gas and water. We saw six or seven houses. Then we saw one my uncle Georgie liked. So we moved in that night. It was an 11 room house with a gas stove, a sink with running water and a room with a bed and a couch. The other rooms were all empty. My uncle Georgie lighted a candle, brought out his zither, sat on the floor and began to play and sing. It was beautiful. It was melancholy sometimes and sometimes funny, but it was always beautiful. I don't know how long he played and sang before he realized he was hungry, but all of a sudden he got up the floor and said, Aram, I want rice. I made a pot of rice that night that was both salty and swill, but my uncle Georgie said, Aram, this is wonderful. The birds got us up at daybreak. The job, I said, you begin today, you know. Today, my uncle Georgie groaned. He walked out of the empty house and I looked around for a broom. There was no broom, so I went out and sat on the steps of the front porch. It seemed to be a nice region of the world in daylight. It was a street with only four houses. There was a church steeple in front of the house, two blocks away. I sat on the porch about an hour. My uncle Georgie came up the street on his bicycle, zigzagging with joy unconfined. Not this year, thank God, he said. What? There is no job, thank our Heavenly Father. Why not? The season is over. That isn't true. The season is over, finished, concluded. Your father will break your head. Praise God, the watermelons are all harvested. Who said so? The farmer himself. He just said that. He didn't want to hurt your feelings. He just said that because he knew your heart wouldn't be in your work. Praise God, the whole season is over. All the fine, ripe watermelons have been harvested. What are we going to do? The season is just beginning. It's ended. We shall dwell in this house a month, then go home. We have paid $6 rent and we have enough money for rice. We shall rest here a month, then go home. With no money, I said. But in good health, he said. Praise God who ripened them so early this year. My uncle Georgie danced into the house to his zither, and before I could decide what to do about him, he was playing and singing. It was so beautiful, I didn't even get up and try to chase him out of the house. I just sat on the porch and listened. We stayed in the house a month and then went home. My grandmother was the first to see us. It's about time you two came home, she said. He's been raging like a tiger. Give me the money. There is no money, I said. Did he work? No, he played and sang the whole month. How did your rice turn out? Sometimes salty, sometimes swill, sometimes perfect. 
But he didn't work. His father mustn't know. I have money. She lifted her dress and got some currency out of a pocket in her pants and put it in my hands. When he comes home, give him this money. She looked at me a moment, then added, Aram Garaglinian, I will do as you say. When my grandfather came home, he began to roar. Home already? Is the season ended so soon? Where's the money he earned? I gave him the money. I wouldn't have him singing all day, my grandfather roared. There is a limit to everything. When you read in a book that a father loves a foolish son more than his wise sons, that writer is a bachelor. In the yard, under the almond tree, my uncle Georgie began to play and sing. My grandfather came to a dead halt and began to listen. He sat down on the couch, took off his shoes and began to make faces. I went into the kitchen to get three or four glasses of water to quench the thirst from last night's rice. When I came back to the parlor, the old man was stretched out on the couch, asleep and smiling, and his son Georgie was singing hallelujah to the universe at the top of his beautiful, melancholy voice. That was Bryn Saito reading William Soroyan's The Journey to Hanford. Bryn, the second piece you're going to read is a lot different than the first piece. Um, I don't even know that it has a formal title. It was a piece written by Soroyan as he was dying. Soroyan was told he had inoperable cancer, prostate cancer, in January of 1981, I believe. And he just started writing again. And he never stopped writing. This man was a madman when it came to writing, standing up there over his royal typewriter in the middle of that house on Griffith Way. And in five months from the time he was told that he was dying till the time he died, he wrote 337,000 words of a memoir that had different titles. One of them was Adios Muchachos. It was never published. There's some real gems in it. And one of those gems is this piece you're going to read. And it's about writing, how to write even though he he says there's no how to write. It's, it's any more than there is uh, a recipe for how to live or how to die. Mm-hmm. So tell us about this piece. Yes, very beautiful piece, an essay, you know, that was republished in the New York Times. And I love how he sort of begins with the tree, he talks about this tree he was writing about and his childhood yard and how that led him to writing about the death of his brother and how this tree just kind of keeps on flowering in his in his imagination and I think for a lot of us writers so many of our poems and our stories and essays begin with the image the powerful image especially maybe an image from childhood that tree or that rock or that river or that room and just from that that one concrete image, um, a whole story can bloom. And it can be about how to live, how to die, how to write. All of that can be in there just from that beautiful starting place. And I think the essay is wonderful for the way it gives um, insight into his process. And and like you talked about the how prolific he was and how what kind of impelled him to keep writing and write that short story every day for that um, those publishers and and how he, he sort of did that and his inspiration and his passion. So 
um, yeah, I think it's a wonderful piece that I'd love to kind of assign to my students, you know, my students of writing and poetry, because it's a great piece on, on the craft of writing. And it's about structure, too, in a way, um, um, if you kind of dumb it down, that you start a story with an idea, something solid, something rooted like a tree. And it starts on that that root and that trunk and then it moves up and the trunk goes to limbs and branches and the branches go to leaves and then, then the leaves fall back down and come back down to where the roots are. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's got a whole lot about structure in it as well. I think some of the best writing does that. It sort of hides these instructive metaphors and images sort of manifest. Yeah. The, the, the spirit and, and purpose of the piece. And yeah, I definitely think we see that here. I'd love to hear you read it. Okay, great. Let's listen now as Bryn Saito reads a passage from William Saroyan on writing. Writers on writing, starting with a tree and finally getting to the death of a brother. How do you write? My answer is that I start with the trees and keep right on straight ahead. I start with these companions of this place, each fixed into the soil of where it is, and sometimes the rock or rocks, and very little else. And after that, the going is not only easy, it is very nearly rollicking, for the tree is a thing of great attachments, and it puts forth all manner of leaves abundantly, and each leaf is the same, but not precisely so, so that noticing this repetitious imprecision leads to everything else, especially life, especially speculation, and especially the last act of life, the unknown abandonment of tree, branch, twig, leaf, bud, flower, fruit, and self. How do you die, write, live, sicken, heal, despair, rejoice? You are lucky if you don't start at the end, at abstraction. If you start at the beginning, at the specific, the seen, the real, and if you are a writer, you cannot permit yourself to be limited. Although in your art, in your writing, in your tiny microscopic making, you have got to impose limits, after all, or you will be able to make nothing. You start with the visible, but really impossible to hold. That gift that is swiftly made commonplace by familiarity. That demonstration of the infinitude of sameness of flame, of color, of structure, of design, of mass, of movement. What a loveliness a fire in a fireplace is to the man sitting there watching and listening, and what sweet whisperings of all manner of language come from the wood being consumed by the fire. In fire, we may answer the question of life and art, how you die, do, live. I have a short story entitled The Broken Wheel from my earliest days, and I remember that when I was just beginning to write the story, I kept asking myself, what is going on? Why are you writing about the old English walnut tree in the backyard of the rickety frame house at 2226 San Benito Avenue in Fresno, and about the two barns stuck together, and about the cactus plants and the grass? and the creosote bushes in the empty lot adjoining that house. You didn't know the name of that scented plant, that stinking plant, stinking of something like kerosene, which years later you came upon by accident 
out by the Southern Pacific Railroad tracks, north from the center of town, and getting a whiff of the strong smell forgotten for 30 or 40 years. You whooped with joy, with restoration of youth and confusion and joy and joy again. So, this is what the creosote bush is then, about which I have read a dozen or more times in 20 or 30 years and never knew it was our own bush in the empty lot where we played peewee, horse, tin can hockey, soccer, baseball, football, and an assortment of invented improvised games. There was no how to it, no how do you write, no how do you live, how do you die? If there were, nothing would live in the deep and very delicate chain of life. It is the doing that makes for continuance. It is not the knowing of how the doing is done. The dancer may try to put in choreographic language, symbols and signs of his muscle and skill so that others may dance that way, but it doesn't seem to work. Others do not dance that way. They study and study the choreographic treasure of instruction and storage, but it doesn't work. He who dances danced. He who saw him dance, she who saw her dance, he who danced with her and watched with him and studied and remembered what had been seen, he and she and they, dancing and dancing to the manuscript of instruction, they dance, but it isn't the same. Perhaps it is better even, or might become better, but it is not the same. There is always only one of each, always, and two may be desirable, but it is impossible. There is a different breath in every breather. A writer writes, and if he begins by remembering a tree in the backyard, that is solely to permit him gradually to reach the piano in the parlor upon which rests the photograph of the kid brother killed in the war. And the writer, nine or 10 years old at the time, can notice that his mother is crying at the loss of the kid brother, who, if the truth is told, was nothing much more than any kid brother, a brat, a kind of continuous nuisance, and yet death had made him the darling of the family heart. And so I wrote it, starting with the old English walnut tree with every year, literally thousands of the magnificent hard fruit, which, when you removed the black casing, which dried and could be made to crumble away to the grooved shell, which then you could break with a hammer, and then behold, as a design of intricate engineering, of art, of construction, the hardwood slick and light brown in its convolutions, in which the meat of the nut, as it is called, has ripened to a substance with the most subtle and satisfying flavor and planted into anything that creatures, including human beings and small boys like Henry and Willie, as my brother and I were referred to by other members of the family and neighborhood and still are, thank God, could remove from the shell and put into the mouth and taste and chew and swallow and never suspect that indeed this is how we do how we live, how we die, how we write, how we read. The story was published in late 1933 in a weekly English language newspaper of the Armenians in Boston called Heronik, 
which means homeland, and by Edward J. O'Brien of the famous Best Short Stories of America, an annual book he had founded in 1915. This good man chose the story for his book in 1933, and I saw it and read it and thought about it, about what I had done, and I thought about the name of the writer of the story, which was Sirach Gorian, not William Saroyan, because I had wanted the writer to be altogether an Armenian, or so I am now able to say, for Sirach is a kind of Old Testament name taken into the Armenian family, and Gorian, meaning Lion Club, I had heard somewhere was the name of an Armenian writer of the 12th century who was not ecclesiastical in his writing when everybody else was. Gorian wrote about the people. He wrote about the world. He did not write about the angels in heaven. And by the time The Broken Wheel came out and Best Short Stories of America, I had finished writing all of the 26 stories and The Daring Young Man on the Flying Trapeze and Other Stories by William Saroyan written and offered to Whit Burnett and his wife, Martha Foley, editors of Story Magazine, subsidized somewhat by Random House, and its founder, that jolly fellow of television's What's My Line, Bennett Cerf. The writing of that story at the age of 25 seemed to inform me that I had served my apprenticeship and could now see to the continuation of my career. A few days before Christmas, my mother, Takui, was visited by her famous and rich kid brother, Aram of Bitlis, and soon he ordered me out of her house because I was a fraud and a parasite, and my theory of being a writer was, at best, pathetic, and at worst, damned ruthless. I went down the stairs of the second-floor flat at number 348 Carl Street in San Francisco and walked from around 8 to midnight, at which time I went home and went to bed. I knew that I had finally written a good story, and that writing would always be my first, if not indeed, my only calling, but I couldn't disagree too much with R.M. of Bitless. I agreed with him entirely that I must make my own way. Only three or four days after this Armenian household scene, a short note came to me from Story, saying that I would soon receive a check for $15 in payment for the daring young man on the flying trapeze, signed by Martha Foley. I replied instantly that starting on January 1st, 1934, I would send Story Magazine a brand new short story every day for the entire month. I don't believe anybody has needed to understand my purpose in doing this. Quite simply, this was a rhetorical piece of precognition, and the question implicit in it was this. Suppose there is a new writer with unmistakable talent, so what? For of course, it must be understood that for ten long years I had been sending stories to editors and had been getting them back with rejection slips. Now, had the daring young man on the flying trapeze come back from story with a rejection slip, or even a short, not unfriendly note, I am obliged to make known that I absolutely would not have given up writing, for I had decided that if that was to be the case, I would go on working Saturdays at the Fior d'Italia stand and the Crystal Palace Market, as I had been lately working from 6 in the morning to 11 o'clock at night for five silver dollars. Now, though, with the acceptance of the story, 
I acquired both the best possible option as well as the responsibility and the right to ask the rhetorical question that I had put into the form of an announcement that was bound to be considered a piece of silly bragging on the part of a desperate unpublished writer. I am a writer. I had absolutely no doubt in my heart or mind that I could indeed write a short story a day for 31 days, but it was understandable that for the first 11 or 12 days of this business, I had doubts about how Martha Foley and Whit Barnett were taking the performance. One day came a telegram saying, stories are arriving, don't stop. And all I sent the husband and wife team, perhaps as many as 36 stories in July, 1934. And I remember that twice I wrote and mailed two stories. And one day I wrote and mailed three. I wanted to, it was as simple as that. And so there was Sirach Gorian and there was William Soroyan and they were the one and the same. Although Edward J. O'Brien informed his friends Whit Burnett and Martha Foley that in his opinion, he had the better of the two new Armenian writers and the editors of Story Magazine responded that he was mistaken for their Armenian writer had sent them a short story a day for the entire month of January 1934. And sometimes he had sent them two brand new short stories in one day and once he sent three. How do you write? You write, man, you write. That's how. And you do it the way the old English walnut tree puts forth leaf and fruit every year by the thousands. And so, feeling a little guilty for perhaps having deceived somebody, I finally wrote to Edward J. O'Brien and told him that Sirach Gorian was William Soroyan, and a year or two later, we met and became good friends. If you practice an art faithfully, it will make you wise. And most writers can use a little wising up. That was Bren Saito reading a passage from William Soroyan on writing, part of a collection called Adios Muchachos. Bren Saito, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was quite a pleasure. And Mark, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks, David. Thanks to Valley Public Radio for doing this. This has been The Time of Our Life. In case you're wondering about our theme music, it was composed by Fresno native Ross Bagdasarian and his first cousin and long-life friend William Soroyan. The melody is actually based on an Armenian folk song. Thank you to Fresno poet Bryn Saito for reading and sharing her insight. Thanks to Mark Arax for his collaboration in this series. Thanks also to Alice Daniel and the entire Valley Public Radio news team. And a special thank you to Mimi Calter and Stanford Libraries for allowing us permission to broadcast these stories. For Valley Public Radio, I'm David Alves. Come out of my house.